Good morning, everyone. Over the last several months, together we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I don't know about you, but I've been struck with how similar things were in Corinth for the new believers compared to today for us. You know, Jesus taught us to be selfless and to love others as ourselves. And not only is that kind of difficult as human beings, but also um, living in the culture we're living in, it's totally antithetical to everything we're hearing, um, all the ads we're seeing, to the way life is. And so I understand why they were having difficulty. Um, and it still raises the question for us, how do we do that? What does that look like? I'm a very slow learner. And when I was in my 30s, I, and that was 40 some years ago, I came to the realization that even though our life was one of fulfillment and we were serving, that maybe we were missing something. At the time, I was very active in the church and particularly um, the mission board. And also, David and I had several causes about which we were passionate and we were involved in the local community, serving on boards and so forth. And we were blessed to have jobs, each of us, wherein we were able to influence the development of public policy. So, you know, our life was somewhat service-oriented. But, as I said, I kind of knew something was missing. And I started having kind of a discussion with God about it, finding all kinds of rationalizations. You know, God, we're really busy and we're trying to fit things in where they fit in. And um, I prayed and I asked him some questions and I waited for answers. And eventually it dawned on me that he had given me the answers in his word. So I went back and started rereading all of what Jesus taught about loving others. And the logical place to start was the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure most of you have read or have heard. If you want to reread it later, it's in Luke chapter 10, verses 35 through 47. And it's the story of a Samaritan who encountered a man, a Jewish man, who had been traveling on a road, and in those days was very dangerous to travel. Thieves often would rob somebody and leave them for dead. And such had happened to a Jewish man. He was lying on the side of the road, dying, bleeding. Uh, two Jewish people had stopped, looked at his condition, and passed by. And the Samaritan, who was considered a second-class citizen, a half-breed by the Jews, they were very reviled by the Jews, came. And even though this was someone who considered him an enemy, he stopped and not only helped, but went way beyond the call of duty. And that's when it hit me when I was rereading that parable, that I don't have the right to define who my neighbor is. And up until that point, that's pretty much what I'd been doing subconsciously. I'd been accepting the things about which I was really excited and rejecting the things that seemed to be a little bit too much. It's normal for us, I think, to want to help others who are like us, or who like us, or who look like us. Um, it's normal for us to 
want to help somebody whose story we know, with whom we feel comfortable. But that's not always what Jesus meant by loving our neighbor. So that prompted me to pray and say, Lord, and you know, I'm sure God was shaking his head when I prayed this prayer because it was so full of conditions. Um, I prayed, God, you know, I don't know whether I'll be able to live up to this prayer, and I know I don't know whether I have the ability to do what you want me to do. And of course, I didn't need to worry about those things, but um, I don't know if I will be obedient, but I want to try to understand more about what you mean by loving others. And literally two days later, we received a phone call from a good friend who at the time was director of Young Life, which is a ministry for teens in the Capital District. And they have clubs on suburban high school campuses, but also they had an inner city club. And in the inner city club was a young girl named Edie who was being raised by her grandmother, and her grandmother was concurrently raising about five or six other grandchildren. And Edie was the oldest, and she was at that point in her teen years going through the phase of being totally disobedient, not coming home when she should, being surly and moody, and it was very disruptive. And the grandmother needed to have her live somewhere else for a period of time. But she didn't want Edie in the foster care system because Edie was close to aging out of that system. So she asked Gil if he had any solution, and Gil called us to keep her just for a few days until he could find something more suitable in the city. And we said, sure. So I'll never forget it. She came on a Saturday night, and she was angry. And, you know, looking at it from her point of view, I get it. She was basically being held hostage by being taken out of her neighborhood, away from her friends, to this suburban white couple living in a house that was way too far away. It was like in another world, and it was another world. So she arrived, and she was incommunicado, and when she did communicate, it was usually very negative, and this went on for a couple of days. And I was just beside myself praying, Lord, if you wanted her here, you know, you've got to show us what to do. And um, that went on for a couple more days. And finally, it dawned on me, you know, I need to just say, hey, call her out on being rude, call her out when she was manipulating us. And I did, you know, I would repeatedly say things like, I know you're testing us, but it's not gonna work. And eventually she kind of got a smile on her face and we started having discussions and she ended up being with us for a period of months. Um, Eventually, she turned 18 and opted to live on her own. She wanted a part-time job while she finished high school. And as it turned out, she didn't finish high school. She got pregnant, and eventually she got her GED, and that enabled her to get a good job. So you're probably wondering, what is the point of this story? Well, I don't know that there is a point. Um, I, it doesn't have you know some happy ending with a ribbon around it. Um, we love Edie, and we've been involved in her life over the years, not intimately, but um, what I do know is that God taught us so much about loving others by having that opportunity. The first thing he taught us is that we should never enter a relationship with someone wherein we're helping them 
with any expectation at all about the results. The only thing we need to do is just do it. And it's up to God what his purposes are and how it's going to happen and how long it's going to take. The second thing that really hit us over the head was, looking back on it especially, that if God asks us to do something, he is going to give us the resources to do it for sure. I mean, think about this. We were so ill-equipped for that. Uh, we had no idea how to handle ED in the best of situations, but particularly not in the worst of situations. And there were a lot of them. And I realize now that we needn't have worried about ability because God always gives us the resources to do what he asks us to do. And we have learned that repeatedly over and over again. And the third thing, and this was probably the most significant, is that I was all hung up on the issue of putting boundaries around my commitment. And what I was doing was keeping out the abundant joy that one gets from helping others without conditions. When I think of when Edie had her little boy um, and how we rejoiced, when I think of how we celebrated when she earned her GED and how we cheered her on as she was getting good jobs and being a great single mom, that's the kind of joy that Jesus meant when he said in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life that you may have it more abundantly. And that kind of joy is just worth everything. Often, though, God asks us to love others in very nitty-gritty, boring, daily, routine ways. Nothing dramatic. Uh, and such was the case about 10 years ago, a friend of ours called and said his friend had fallen, broken her leg really badly. And because she lived on a second floor apartment, the hospital was going to send her to a nursing home unless she could find someone to care for her who lived in a first story home, one story home. And did we know of anybody? Because he knew we had some friends who had bought ranches recently and we tried to work something out but nothing worked out so we said to him why not bring her here for a few days when we were bed from upstairs to this little teeny room we had which was a den and it'll be a little uncomfortable but we can make it work until we can find something more suitable so picture this from her point of view we went to pick her up at St. Peter's she'd only met us once in her life the doctor had just told her she'd be out of work for at least six weeks, and she loves her job at the legislature. She'd be dependent upon whoever was caring for her, and that was what was facing her, not to mention she was in a lot of pain. So she came home, and over the next few days, she tried to work out something with a friend, but that didn't work out. And we said to her, you are welcome to stay as long as you need to stay. And over the next six months, it turned out she had a very complicated break, and she couldn't even start rehab for the first four months. Um, she did require 24-7 help, and it was very difficult on her. She was such a good sport because during the day we were working, we were still with our mission agency. We were able to delay our travel, but we were working during the day in the office. So except to be available to help her, she was, you know, alone pretty much. Um, 
but she was a great sport. We developed such a wonderful friendship with her. She's such a lovely young woman, and we got to know so many of her friends whom we would invite over to visit with her. Uh, so the whole thing was a total blessing for us. And the day that she moved out, she had found a one-story apartment because she still was having trouble navigating. Um, we helped her move, and it was a long day of moving things and cleaning and so forth. And we came home. We were really tired. We sat down on the sofa, and the doorbell rang. And David answered the door, and it was our neighbor. She said, I know it's late, but I have been waiting for six months to ask you this question. And David said, what question? And she said, why did you do that? Are you crazy? And that gave us an opportunity to tell her why we did it. We did it because Jesus tells us to love others as ourselves, and we wanted to do that. We wanted to help her. And that led to a discussion with her about our faith and to other discussions with her and with other neighbors. And we learned in that situation, not only did God bless us richly with all those benefits, but also he showed us that often it's not just about helping the person who is in need. It's giving him an opportunity to attract others to him. So going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. I realize now that there really are two points to that. Um, the first, we've talked about the who is our neighbor, that it's not up to us to limit who our neighbor is. But the second is a little more subtle. The two Jews who passed by, one was a Jewish priest and one was a Jewish Levite. We tend to be very hard on them. Um, they wouldn't stop and help their fellow Jew. And yet, you know, I think if I were in the middle of midtown Manhattan and somebody who was a little uh, threatening came up to me and asked for help, I might do the same kind of calculation that they may have done. This is kind of a dangerous road. I need to keep moving. I don't know that that's what was on their mind, but it may have been. But the Samaritan reversed his thinking entirely. When he came upon the Jewish man in need, he wasn't thinking about himself, whether he was in danger, what the cost would be to him. He reversed his thinking by saying, what happens if I don't stop and help this man? And that's probably one of the most important things I've learned, is that's what we need to ask ourselves. What happens if I don't help this person? The things that God has taught are hard to summarize, and I'm still learning. Um, I think the first is most difficult to articulate. One of the things I have concluded, and some of you may disagree with me, but I don't think we have the right to say no to an opportunity to love someone or to love a group of people simply because we don't have compassion in our hearts for them. It's easier if we hear of a situation and we have lots of compassion, but the fact that we don't isn't a decision point showing us that we shouldn't help. We should. And we know that once we get involved and get to know that person or those people and hear the story, we're going to grow to love them. The second thing is that 
Loving others most often takes the form of just pure service, day-to-day -day routine. Rarely is it something really dramatic or heroic. Another thing is what we've learned repeatedly, and that is we should never say no to an opportunity to love others because we lack the ability or the resources. If it's clear to us that God wants us to do it, he will absolutely give us what we need, and that is without fail. We've learned that loving others in Jesus' name is, as Dwight Moody said, and Dwight Moody was an evangelist, and he said people don't really understand theology or dogma, but they do understand love and sympathy. And that is so true. Loving others in Jesus' name attracts others to Jesus. And finally, being selfish human beings, we've learned that loving others really is the only way to experience joy. Um, it's just full of joy that only God can help us experience. And it makes it all very worthwhile. So right now, I think there may be some of you who are wondering if you should respond to an opportunity you know of to love others. And others of you may be just grappling with who is my neighbor. So I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for being together, even though we're not physically together. We thank you for being with us during this service, during the worship time. We thank you, Father, for what you have taught us in our own lives through experiences you've given us, as well as through your word. We thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to love others as ourselves. We confess that it's difficult. We confess that we enter these situations with disbelief, fear, and apprehension. We ask you, though, Father, for each one of us to just put upon our heart what you want us to do and then give us your power, your strength, your guidance in doing that. Father, thank you so much for everything you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together. And I don't know about you, but the fact that we're able to do this together, virtually at least, every week is really important to me. Um, it's an opportunity to stop and reflect upon what Jesus did for us. I mean, he came down from heaven, limited as a human being. He didn't sin in order that he might be able to be a sacrifice on the cross for our sins, because that was the only way for us to be reunited with God. For those who believe that Jesus' sacrifice and then being raised from the dead again um, by God is sufficient and have been reunited with God, at that moment we believe our eternal life begins, not when we get to heaven, but the moment we believe. And that's when our opportunity to experience the abundant life begins. 
So we have much to celebrate. And also, it's a time each week that we can confess our sins so that there's nothing between us and God. So if you would, um, if you have your bread, which represents the body of Christ, and if you have your juice, which represents the blood that he shed for us, um, let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you so much for giving up your son to sacrifice his life on this earth. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that, for going to the cross, knowing the pain you would endure to pay for our sins. And you would have done that if there were only one of us. Thank you. We do confess that we have sinned this week. We ask that you forgive us our sins, both those we are aware of and those we're not aware of. And as we take the bread, we ask that you draw us close to you. And as we drink the juice representing your blood shed for us, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.